Good morning, everyone. Let me make sure this thing's on. Can you hear me in the back? Perfect. So today, the Holy Spirit. It's going to be great. Third article of the Creed. What could possibly be better on a Sunday morning than talking about the Holy Spirit? I'm excited. I hope you are too. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, this is our class on the small catechism. So if you have it with you, you're going to want to open up to page 17. If you don't have it with you, you can, uh, you can make the walk of shame up the side aisles. <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. You're completely off the camera. But we do have, uh, I think we have some catechisms over here for you. And we do have some more to purchase up here as well. So um, you'll, want a, you'll want a small catechism. Now, page 17, you're going to see that we're in the Creed, and last week we looked at the second article of the Creed, which is the person and work of Christ. Now, what is the most simple but steadfast way of remembering the person of Christ? It's these three things. He's true God, true man in one person. True God, true man, one person. Those three things will steer you clear of 99.9. It's like the, it's like the hand sanitizer. It'll kill like 99.9% of bacteria. Um, those, those three points will kill 99.9% of Christological heresy. Uh, we can get a lot more detailed and technical. We can talk about Arianism, we can talk about monophysitism, we can talk about Apollinarianism, we can get as detailed as you want. But at the end of the day, those three principles, true God, true man, one person, that'll keep you 99.9% safe. All right, and then the work of Christ Jesus, that he redeems us poor miserable sinners through his holy cross, through his innocent suffering and death, through the shedding of his blood. The author of Hebrews says, There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And when this one who is both God and man, so beautifully in Acts, there's this this statement, the blood of God. It's God's blood that's shed on the cross because Christ is true God. And so that blood of God is sufficient to cleanse you of all your sins, but not only you, it's the blood of God here we're talking about. This is the ocean of grace that blots out the iniquities of the entire world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so by by the fact that his blood is divine blood, that blood cleanses the world and each one of us. And really that's the ground of our salvation. Baptism comes and says, this is for you and you're mine, and I claim you as my own. I write my name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon you, and I wash your sins away. Same with the absolution. It's that blood of Jesus, the fact that he is crucified, 
cleansing us of our sins that imbues the absolution with power. Where Jesus says to his apostles, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. So that forgiveness spoken is the forgiveness won by Jesus on the cross once and for all. And then how much more evident could it possibly be when he says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. And you have these two things separated. Body and blood separated. That's Old Testament language of sacrifice. We are partaking of the sacrifice that he made once and for all on the cross when we come to Holy Communion, thus having, our, having the forgiveness of sins and also becoming one flesh with him. This is where the church becomes the body of Christ by partaking of the body of Christ. Now, we always say you are what you eat. I don't, anybody have any eggs this morning? You were kind of looking like an egg. So when you... <laughs> You are what you eat. Is that what it means? When you eat something, you become that thing? Look, there's a bagel in the back. No. (laughs) No. So lesser foods, when we eat them, they are assimilated into us. The food we eat, you know, the food I ate, I guess last night, became me. I didn't become it. All right. Now, um, how does it work with food that is higher than us? The food that is Christ's body and blood. Well, in partaking of that, you truly become what that is. It isn't assimilated into you. You're assimilated into it. We all are. Thus, we become the body of Christ by partaking of the body of Christ. The church becomes the body of Christ by partaking of the body of Christ. And by partaking of his blood, the life is in the blood. Capital T, capital L. The life is in the blood. And so his life is our life. All right, all of this predicated upon the fact that he is True God, true man, one person shedding his blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, in John's gospel, a really important tie-in, and unfortunately in many English translations, it goes like this. At the end of Jesus' crucifixion, he gave up the ghost. He kicked the bucket. Is that what that means? No, but we even say that. I mean, if my fish dies at home, well, it's not mine. I inherited it from my kids. Um, (laughs) Could we please have a fish? Yeah, here you go. Are you going to take care of said fish? Nope. (laughs) Okay, I guess it's my fish. Uh, When the fish dies, you say the fish kicked the bucket or the fish gave up the ghost. That's not what we're saying about our Lord Jesus. certainly not what John is saying. He gave up the spirit. In other words, what John is showing is he's, he's wedding two events. He's wedding the crucifixion and Pentecost. Pentecost happens 50 days later. But he's wedding these two events so that as Christ dies, as the atonement is complete, as we are made holy by his blood, he pours out the Holy Spirit. He hands over, or traditions is the technical language, the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Okay, so that's the beautiful connection between the second article of the creed and the third article of the creed. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he does for us, then the Holy Spirit is poured out. This is a major theme in John's Gospel when they're sitting in the upper room and Jesus is teaching them about what's to come next. Remember he says in many and various ways, unless I depart... The Holy Spirit will not be sent to you. 
And so by virtue of his departure, by virtue of his atoning death, then the Father may send the Holy Spirit upon his church. All right, so that's where the Holy Spirit comes from. You can see how this flows from the second article, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, down to the third article, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're on page 17, take a look at this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Which can seem like a catch-all, because it kind of is. But here's the golden thread that runs through all of it. Luther asks, why is he called the Holy Spirit? Does anybody know the answer? Because he makes things holy. Yeah, that's what he does. So Luther says he's the Holy Spirit because he makes things holy. And thus, look at this article again. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. So who is it that makes the Holy Christian Church? The Holy Spirit. The communion of... Now, in English, this isn't obvious. In Greek, it would have been. The communion of saints. What are saints? Holy ones. So he makes the church and he makes individual holy ones. And how does he do this? Well, by the forgiveness of sins. How does he make the body holy? By the resurrection of the body. This side of death, no body is holy. I guess that was a pun. I didn't intend it. Um, But only in the resurrection of the body is the body holy. And then the life everlasting. Is this life, earthly life, considered holy in any way, shape, or form? No, not of itself. Only declared and credited so by the gospel. But we're looking for that life everlasting, which is holiness of life forever and ever. So it's the Holy Spirit's job to make things holy. So far, so good? Okay. So what does this mean? And here we have uh, Luther's explanation of the third article. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, Believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Let's pause there and go through that. Maybe the most interesting thing that, at least interesting to us Lutheran pastors, we always point this out is that if you, if you look at the grammar here, I believe that I cannot... Now, this would be a negative part of the statement, so we can take that out and see what the positive state... I believe that I cannot... Okay, how? By my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. So, I believe that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord. Now, the means there, the by uh, my own reason or strength, I believe that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord. You see that? So, faith comes by free will. And free will because we actually have it. Is that how the scripture says it? 
No, faith comes by hearing. hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So how does this hearing come to us? How does this faith come to us? By the word. And who's using the word to create faith in us? The Holy Spirit. And then by faith alone, God credits us with righteousness or holiness. Okay, so you see it's a little, there's a few dots to connect here, but the point is that it is the Holy Spirit who gives us faith and thus makes us holy. It's a gift. We're going to look at a number of scripture verses about this. Okay, But it is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. That is of my own natural reason or strength. Okay? Or come to him. But rather, now positively, the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Again, faith comes by hearing. Or no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. All right, These are the kinds of scriptures that undergird this. The Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel enlightened me with his gifts. This is, um, we need to recover this. Baptism is enlightenment. It's going from darkness into light. And the baptismal life is one of perpetual enlightenment. Because Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Everything I have commanded. So the baptismal life of constantly receiving the word, the same word that came to us in the water, baptizing us, by being taught that word, we are in a continual state of enlightenment. If only we had taught this, then the 60s never would have had to happen. Everybody, everybody going out and seeking enlightenment, man. It's in your baptism. It's in your baptism. As early as Justin Martyr, baptismal talk is enlightenment talk. Um, so we're talking like, like second century um, and all the way through. Now, also, though, enlightened me with his gifts. And I would say this, you know, there is enlightenment in the absolution, to be sure. There is enlightenment. In, I, what's the enlightenment in confession absolution? The enlightenment is chiefly this, that as you examine yourself, you're going to find all kinds of different layerings of sin. And the general confession helps us with this. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And there's a whole economy there, right? So, you know, a parent thinks, I'm getting irritated with my child. Then they voice. Hey, stop it. I'm getting irritated with you. And then they act and grab the child and say, be seated on the stairs. (laughs) Okay, so there's so often a progression between thought, word, and deed. All right. Now, what we can recognize is that sin within us starts with a thought. And the goal is to cut it off there. I know that um, in our overly therapeutic environment, there's this idea of venting, also known as sinning more. (laughs) Venting does no good 
psychologically and even less good spiritually. Because what are you doing? You're taking thoughts that you want to seek to control those thoughts and have within yourself the mind of Christ. And instead you're manifesting and instantiating them in word. When you said it, now it's become this verbal act. All right? And then again, if you have said it, it's slipped out, and you've had this verbal act, you've had this catharsis, what's, then what? Stop it there before it comes, becomes an action. Right? So you're driving down the freeway, and you think to yourself, that bozo just cut me off. Now, you can stop it right there. And one of my favorite lines that I use with myself is a line from the catechism that God uses one knave to punish another. So as soon as I have that thought, I think God uses one bozo to punish another. (laughs) All right, so that bozo just cut me off. And if you don't stop the thought, what inevitably happens? It comes out of the mouth. What are you doing, bozo? And if it comes out of the mouth and you don't stop it there, what happens next? Sign language. Yeah, and an action. Or you, if you're a little more pious, you slam on the horn. You know, you, after, even after you're past them, you leave it on for good measure. No, okay, thought, word, and deed. By what we've done and by what we've... So no sooner than that happens to us, you know, somebody cuts you off when you, know, when you were trying to do something. So then you see somebody else who wants to do the same thing you just did. And because you're upset, you accelerate and don't let them in. Happen to me, it's going to happen to you. Okay, so now we have sin of commission, what we've done in thought, word, and deed. And we have sin of omission, the very thing our neighbor wanted, the very thing we wanted 30 seconds earlier, we fail to do. So, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of thought, word, and deed. All right? And, and so, we, as we grow in our confession of sins, we are enlightened as to the nature of actual sin and the nature of our sinful condition. How many of you have ever read uh, Augustine's Confessions? He's so great. He's so great. He's got this one part where he talks about being young and stealing a pear. Do you, do you, do you remember this? Maybe you've even heard this told because it's kind of a favorite, like little pastoral thing to grab a hold of. But he talks about he talks about what it is about the pear. It's not so much that they were hungry. It's not so much that they wanted it. It was that they knew it was wrong. And there's a kind of perverse delight and joy when it's like, no, 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 and you go, I'm going to break the rule. I'm going to grab a hold of it. So we even notice this psychologically, if it's not even in sin, you know. It's like, what's the, what's the quickest way to get me to, like, eat whatever I want? Tell me, okay, we're going to start a diet right now. It's like, okay, we're going to start it tomorrow. <laughs> so we've got this, it, it even penetrates our psyche and our psychology. But even deeper on a spiritual level is we can start to recognize within ourselves that there is this impulse. Like just because God says X, I say not X. And there is even, and then in sinning, there's even just kind of this delight in the rebelliousness of it. Lord, have mercy when we, call, when we mistake this for Christian freedom. 
<laughs> and then assert that this is our, a mark of our orthodoxy, <laughs> giving into my sinful nature. All right, so we can be enlightened in confession absolution. We can be enlightened. Now I'm shifting gears to that third point. Sorry for the long diatribe. But we are enlightened also in the Lord's Supper. Um, when you go to the Lord's Supper, you are meeting with the crucified and risen Lord. He's right there. He's saying, my body and blood given and shed for you. And in this, there's profound enlightenment. There's not only creation of faith and strengthening of faith, but there's also expanding of faith. So over the years, as you go to that communion altar, you're going to notice all kinds of different things. And as you learn about the scriptures and reflect on the scriptures, you're going to be able to see all kinds. You'll be able to go to the communion rail as if you were in the Garden of Eden. As if Adam and Eve had just eaten the forbidden fruit, that living tree, which fruit brought them death. And there you are before the dead tree, hanging from it the body and blood of Jesus, that fruit from the dead tree which gives you life. Or you're there at Passover and the angel of death is out there doing his final curse. And here you are safely shrouded within eating the flesh of the Passover lamb with the blood not put on the doorway of your house but on the doorway of your body safe from the angel of death that really should, if God were only just, should be coming to get you and yours but you're spared. Or you're there with Isaiah, standing in the holy place, looking at the veil of the holiest of holies, and suddenly it becomes the starry night and sky, and you can see through it. And on either side are seraphim singing the sanctus in the liturgy. That's why it's there. Holy, 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 kadosh, 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 Yahweh Sabaoth. And you're there and you see the altar become the throne of Jesus. And it's not an angel that takes a tongue and goes to the altar and takes a burning coal and puts it to your lips, but rather it's Jesus himself who comes and takes not a coal but his body and puts it to your lips and says what that angel said to Isaiah. He now, Christ now says to you, your sin is atoned for. For you, for the forgiveness of sins. All right, and on and on and on it goes. But there's enlightenment through all these gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're getting at when we say, the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, that is, he's converted me, and he's enlightened me with his gifts. And in this way, he has sanctified, that is, made me holy. Remember what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to make things holy. So he has made me holy, that's the language of sanctification, and kept me in the true faith. And that's a humbling thing. Because if the Holy Spirit withdrew himself for even a split second, what would happen to our faith? Gone. Just like that. The Holy Spirit is the one who sustains true faith in us. All right, let's pause there. Mostly so I can get a cup of coffee and have a little sip here. But um, also so that you can ask me if you have any Thoughts or questions or anything like that. Okay, I've got two hands in the back. Do we have a microphone today? Just kidding. You've been silenced. (laughs) Makes my life a little easier. 
Why don't you um, Why don't you say it, and I'll try to repeat it for the. Yeah, I'm not sure how best to summarize that question for the for the sake of the World Wide Web here. Um, but yes, suffice it to see, um, the Lutheran view is going to differ from most modern Protestant views, and maybe without pointing a finger too critically, um, it would help to know a few things. And we're going to get into the scriptural basis here in a minute, but it would help to know that the Lutheran position is the position of Augustine, and Augustine's position is formed over and against Pelagius. Pelagius is one of those arch-heretics, bad guys from the early church. And so Augustine and much of the early church were kind of uncritically um, just sort of like, yeah, your will's engaged in conversion, you know. Um, obviously, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, but your will... So there's this imprecision of language. And Augustine finds himself there with that imprecise language. And there was especially um, a, a need and a cause in the era of that church to combat a heresy known as Manichaeanism kind of this duality um, that, that God uh, creates evil things and God creates good things. Um, and so the human being as a good thing, um, or excuse me, yeah, so, so then what it requires, well, what you have, stumbling all over myself, sorry, let me, re- let me regather. With Manichaeanism, you have this duality um, where it fits right in accord with a kind of predeterminism. God has created you this way. You can't escape these bounds. If you're evil, you're evil. If you're good, you're good kind of boundaries, okay? And what Augustine and the rest of the church were doing against that was pushing, no, if you're evil, you can believe and become good and it's not this strict duality god even already at that stage this kind of thing of no god doesn't create creatures who are evil unto hell right you can convert so there's this real push against that heresy toward the free will and the emphasis of the will in conversion but along comes pelagius and takes that theology to its logical conclusion and just says well it's up to every man to simply choose and assert to believe in God and then to live a righteous life from that moment forward. At which time there's this like cosmic record scratch. Augustine realizes, oh my goodness, that's what it means to hold to free will? And Augustine goes into the scriptures and he finds many of the scriptures we're going to quote here in a minute. And he says, no, we have to articulate salvation as a gift of God. Because that's what the scriptures demand. Okay? So then the Lutheran tradition is this Augustinian tradition, this small c Catholic tradition of the Western church. Now along the way, you have Roman Catholics under the papacy. And really, I don't know how much it is Roman Catholics themselves versus the teachings of the papacy. Then you have some of the teachings of the radical reformers that try to bring back in this idea of free will. And the Lutherans are going, wait a minute. I thought we learned our lesson. This free will talk is Pelagian talk. 
you may think you've nuanced it, but if you take it to its logical conclusion, you're going to agree with Pelagius, who was already refuted by Augustine and countless other Orthodox Church fathers up here for a thousand years into the 15th century, 16th century. Okay? So thus the Lutheran position understood historically, um, again, page 17 in your small catechism, and we're on the third article, and if you go to Luther's, what does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. Okay? That's the Augustinian view. That is the small c Catholic view, the kataholos, according to the whole view on this particular question. All right, so when Luther asserts this, he's saying, in effect, what the papacy is teaching is a return to Pelagianism. What the free will guys are teaching, the radical reformers who are like, oh, Luther didn't go far enough, what they're teaching is a modified version of Pelagianism. We reject that. We're the church that is always taught with Augustine that one cannot convert himself. This has to be done to you as a free gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay, so that places us then historically and theologically where we are continuing to assert this today. In the meantime, we can identify um, kind of a crass Pelagian view, but we can also identify two subsets of the Pelagian view, which are just different ways of scrambling the same egg. In the end, it doesn't much matter which way you did it. Okay, And that is, um, here, it, it is, uh, I should introduce this next, but it is semi-Pelagianism and synergism. Now, we won't get into the details there. This is supposed to be a basic class, so we won't get into the details. But here's, what I, here's why I wanted to grab this and why I brought it in, in fact. All right. There, is, um, you know, there, are, there are three books that will make you instantaneously attractive. Your Lutheran study Bible. Now, if you're married, this works because your, your spouse will find you instantly more attractive. If you're single, this is the surest way I know to attract, attract viable Christians. And that's to carry with you a Lutheran study Bible and a book of Concord and a small catechism. At all times? Oh, at all times. Okay. Yeah. Well, pastor, that's too heavy. Well, get stronger. I mean, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Physically stronger, spiritually stronger, more attractive. <laughs> I mean, who's, who could be against these things? Yeah, so, okay, so this is what you want. You want your, um, you want your catechism, which hopefully you've already purchased. Um, you want your Book of Concord, and you want your Bible. Now, your Book of Concord has this wonderful article in the formula of the Solid Declaration, and the Solid Declaration, and um, this is the Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, and it's got an entire article on this question of the will first half of the article, all the scriptural verses you could possibly imagine, talking about how in conversion, when we're fallen, you don't have any free will. That which is of the flesh is contrary to that which is of the Spirit. The Spirit has to convert you. Okay? Your will is the thing that needs to be converted. Then what's the whole second half of this article? Now that you've been converted, now that you've been enlightened and regenerated and have become a new creature by the power of the Spirit, now 
your will has been freed, though in great weakness. And so the second half is, yeah, first half is before conversion, no free will in spiritual matters. Second half, yes, free will, but your free will is weak because it's constantly battling the sinful nature within you. Okay? So, formula of Concord, solid declaration, article two, free will, this is what you want. But that takes us into like, this is trying to be Lutheranism 101, this would be Lutheranism 102. So we'll leave off on that. But yeah, this is, um, so this is the theological and historical context of why conversion matters to Lutherans. We're holding the small c Catholic line that's always been held. Um, if you end up in heaven, do you, get to, do you have any reason to boast? And that's really kind of like where the rubber hits the road with this question. If your will is free, and Jones's will is free, and what's required for you, Christ has done everything, all you have to do is assent to it, exercise your will, choose, decide. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. Christ has done 99.999%. All you have to do is say yes. Okay, but you say yes, you're in heaven. Jones says no, and he's in hell. What was the definitive factor? You saying yes, and Jones saying no. You see how this theology, it, it appears like so godly and holy. Oh, Christ has done everything. But in fact, then the material point, what it all boils down to is if you did something and someone else failed to do that thing, then you're in heaven. You see how that works? So all it is is a really fancy satanic backdoor attack to get you to stand in, a, in heaven going, huh, I may have been a pretty big sinner, but not like Jones. At least I made the right decision. Thank God that I'm not like this other man. I made a free will decision for Christ, and Jones rejected Jesus. And so, yeah, here's some marshmallows, Jones. Okay, all right. I know it's warm in here. No, it's hot. Everybody's falling asleep with their eyes open. But, um, you know, that's the material point, right? So, so when it comes down to that, it, like, here's just the rubber hits the road. We Lutherans refuse to go to heaven and boast. We refuse to boast in our works. We refuse to boast in our decision. We say, I am here only because of you, Father. I am here only because your Holy Spirit enlightened me and set my eyes on Christ the crucified who died to make atonement for my sins. That's it. There's no merit. There's no worthiness. There's no works. There's no decision within me. Full stop. Thank you, God. To you be the glory forever and ever. Okay? That's it. So that is really why we Lutherans land so strongly on this. There's not going to be any boast um, in our mouths when we stand before the judgment seat. All right, so far so good. I thought I saw another hand um, waving, waving around desperately. You have been found worthy of the microphone. Is anybody um. else starting to feel like nursing home hot in here? <laughs> <laughs> the... the uh, Descent ad inferno is, thank you so much. Yeah. I started the class and it looked like it wasn't going to get any hotter than 68. What's that? It was on heat? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, 
anyway, hopefully we'll all uh, regain brain function here in a minute. Uh, okay, did I see it? Yeah, please. My question goes back to the very beginning when you were talking about Christ giving up the ghost on the cross and then the Holy Spirit was given. Mm-hmm. What about all the people that died before that time? Did they not have the Holy Spirit? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. No, um, so in uh, Psalm 51, David prays, Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. So apparently David did have the Holy Spirit. And it would be hard to imagine all the Old Testament scriptures being written by people who didn't have the Holy Spirit. But what is happening is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a qualitative and quantitative way that he wasn't previously poured out. What's one example of this? Mass conversion of the Gentiles. Didn't happen before. We're so individually minded as Americans, we just, you know, we want to diagnose like, well, what, did I, what do I have personally that the Old Testament saint didn't have personally? But that's kind of the wrong question. Um, the, better, the bigger question is, what, what on a macro level changed? How was the Holy Spirit poured out after the death and resurrection of Christ at, at Pentecost? And you see massive conversion of the Gentiles. You see, you see a sermon preached by Peter that converts 3,000. I've been preaching a long time, no such luck. <laughs> what else do you see? You see a manifestation of gifts, um, especially in that, in that first century, a manifestation of supernatural gifts meant to conf- uh, confirm the testimony of the apostles. Like, hey, this is what God is saying, and then God does something that only God could do. You know, heals somebody of, of blindness or something like this, right? Confirming, and then once the word is all confirmed, those gifts tend to kind of drift away. They pop up from here and, I mean, here and there again. We don't have to be too narrow with our definition there. But they tend to go away because they've lost their importance. Their chief importance was to confirm the verbal preaching of the apostles. So then we just look around and we see the church scattered throughout the globe, um, every corner of the globe virtually. And we say, that's new. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Um, There's also a fullness. I mean, in the Old Testament, you're still waiting for the Christ to come. We know he's come. We know his name is Jesus. We know the shape of that. We know um, that there's this thing called baptism that they didn't have. And by baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the name of God upon us. This is one of the one of the great tells that American Christianity has gone off the rails it's constantly looking back to the Old Testament, going, ah, wish we could do that. Wish we could live that Torah life. Wish we could do all the ceremonies and rites and rituals of the Old Testament. Like, that's a special kind of spiritual insanity. All of those folks would, would have given anything they had to live now when the fullness of the Messiah has come and we are in his kingdom and have his holy sacraments, how would you ever turn back to that which is mere shadows and foreshadowing of what is to come in the New Testament? So if this is a topic that's interesting to you, come join us on Thursday mornings or find the recordings because both of these topics, first class, how has American Christianity failed? Brian Wolf Mueller's book and the answer is like, all kinds of ways. <laughs> this is one of them, constantly jonesing for the Old Testament. Why do you jones for the Old Testament? Because you don't have the new and you don't see it as real. You've dismissed it all as symbolic. 
and metaphorical, and so you want to go back to the stuff that's real. You see how that works? And then our next class, Hebrews. The author of Hebrews um, spends his whole time, this is 11 to 12 on, on Thursdays, and you can find the recordings, but the author of Hebrews, his entire point is, don't go back to Judaism. You're going back to the lesser. We have a greater priest, a greater temple, a greater sacrifice in Jesus. Why would you ever dream on going backwards? So, anyway, these two things to try to answer that question, that we are living in the best possible and most blessed time in the economy of salvation um, right up until Christ returns and we go into the new age, the new heavens and the new earth. But this is the best. This is the fulfillment and tell us of it all. So give thanks to God you were born now. Okay, please. I have the mic, though. All right. (laughs) We trust you. Uh, I love the way you expressed our, our, the way that we're brought to Christ. And uh, would it be okay to add uh, what we discussed earlier at, on a Thursday class, in that Thursday class, that, for example, in my case, I was baptized as, as an infant, brought to the Lord at that time, Holy Spirit and everything, and I don't even remember it. I, I was there mm. only because I, I see the piece of paper that says I was there. And my parents brought me there and told me they brought me there to the church, I mean, yeah. to be baptized. So uh, I think that's kind of um, a shocking statement to people that have a full testimony and, and uh, go on and on and on about you know, their life of sin and how it changed and everything. Yeah. And when you say, I was baptized and I don't remember it, it's, it's a shocking difference. Yeah, do you know what the original testimony was? It still is the testimony in the Lutheran Church today. I believe in God the Father Almighty. That was the personal testimony. The personal testimony was the creed. Because it's not my special experience or unique experience, as special and as unique as that might be. Um, that's not what constitutes my Christian confession, my testimony. What constitutes my Christian confession and testimony is the same we all share, namely the creed. So, yeah, and then you're pointing, you're pointing out this beautiful thing about baptism is that as long as you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit with water, you can't mess it up. It's valid forever. You're a son of God. Oh, yes, but can't I fall out of faith and reject God and walk away. Yes, you can. Just like that prodigal son in the parable that Jesus tells, who is truly a son, walks away into all kinds of unholiness. If he would have died, he would have died outside of the father's house. But he hits such rock bottom that he comes to his senses and comes home. And, and guess what the father says? Does he say, you're, you're no longer a son to me? No. He embraces him. He wraps him in the robe. Remember what St. Paul says? All you who have been baptized have put on Christ. So he wraps him in the robe, puts the ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Everyone rejoice, slaughter the fattened calf, for my son has returned. He who is dead is alive. He who is lost is found. All right, so he wants a son forever a son. Now, a son can die outside of the house, or by God's grace and mercy, a son can return. But when he returns that baptism, that sonship is Valid. It's always valid. So that's what we mean by you can't mess baptism up. If you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's done. You're a son of God. And that washing stands perpetually over you. Not just I was baptized, but I 
am baptized perpetually over you, washing you away, washing your sins away, cleansing you before God. Okay, so um, can, can confession absolution be messed up? Yeah, sure. Sure, we can botch that. We can make a, we can make a terrible confession. We can also not hear the absolution, or we can hear the absolution as somehow dependent upon my confession. We can involve ourselves in that in ways that are, you know, wrong. Same with the Lord's Supper. In Scripture, we have an example of this, of course. Um, the, the Corinthians in chapter 11, who aren't discerning that the body and blood of Christ are present, they're communing wrongly. So it is theoretically possible, though completely ill-advised, to mess up communion or mess up absolution. But baptism can't be messed up. It's there forever. It's the ground and foundation of the faith given to us by the Holy Spirit. So that's the strength of baptism and why baptism is really foundational. Um, we can't pit baptism and the Lord's Supper against each other, but it is, it is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our sonship and relationship with God. So thank you for that. Um, in response to um, the question about um, being born, uh, uh, born again with the Spirit as an infant, I compare it to being born as a physical human being because we had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. and we're not aware of what's happening to us, but it happens to us. Mm-hmm. And we don't even... we can see a certificate from the doctor we were born but we have evidence all around us yeah. that we were born yeah and i feel as christ used the term you have to be born again to echo that realization in the physical world yeah yep. and then the other point i want to make with dale's question about the holy spirit and christ working as i see it it's objective salvation through christ he died for all and the Holy Spirit applies as subjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. To us. Yeah, and this is, I mean, remember the solas of the of the Reformation. Uh, solus Christus, Christ alone. Does Christ alone mean that we're saved? Not we like. Let's put that alone against grace. No, that doesn't work. Against faith. No, that doesn't work. So it's by Christ's death alone. That's how. The atonement of the sins of the world is made. Now, what is the offer of salvation? How does that come to us? By grace alone. And then that is received how? By faith alone. And if we want to specify that grace, we're going to specify the means of grace, the ways in which God works to communicate what he's done on the cross in Christ Jesus to us, namely the word and the sacraments. Okay, so when we say that it's Christ alone, it's grace alone, it's faith alone, we're just describing different aspects of conversion. What it looks like from the human, what it looks like from the, the means or mode, and what it looks like in terms of its formal accomplishment. Yeah. So we don't pit these solas against each other. The scriptures don't. Yep, thank you for that. All right, let's, um, let's press on and go a little further. So it's not just about me. 
And of course, the first paragraph here in the explanation is, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Christ Jesus in the one true faith. Now, here's where we have to say, I believe, not I see, because when we look at Christendom, we see it completely divided, But we know that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, has nonetheless created Christians scattered everywhere. And when they confess their sins, they're confessing also their false doctrine. And that's true for us, by the way, too, if we happen to believe anything false. So this is is the work of the Holy Spirit that uh, the whole Christian church on earth is his work. So you can see, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. The collection of all believers in Christ. So it is again the Holy Spirit who calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies everyone, and then keeps us, sustains us as a church with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. All right, let's just finish it out. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. You can see that Luther's just tracking with the article of the, the various articles of the third article uh, of the creed. So the Holy Spirit creates the Holy Church. How does he do? The Holy Spirit gives the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, that's what the church is supposed to be all about. The church, as Jesus says, is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So if you come into the church and they're not preaching repentance or the forgiveness of sins, you kind of have to scratch your head and say, is this the church? You know, 12 steps to a better you is not exactly the forgiveness of sins, is it? 40 steps to being less annoying to your coworkers is not the gospel. So the preaching of repentance and the preaching of forgiveness of sins, that living word of the living God that comes and penetrates our hearts and creates in us a desire to confess our sins, creates in us that holy absolution and those gifts that come from God and then set our conscience free, creating in us a a clean heart and a right spirit. That's the whole point of the Christian church. So daily and richly forgiving all my sins and the sins of all believers. And then, um, and notice who's doing the doing there. In this Christian church, he, the Holy Spirit, daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. Could be Jesus too. Little ambiguity there grammatically. And on the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. Which, again, there, even though there's grammatical ambiguity, I take that to be the Spirit. So I take the former one to be the Spirit, too. But it doesn't matter. So the Holy Spirit will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. So what do we have here? We have um, what the Scriptures teach us, that on the last day, everyone is raised from the dead. Uh, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. But everybody raised in their body because Christ is raised in his body. All right, any questions on the explanation? Or are we okay?
Okay, let's jump forward. We've just got a minute, and I want to show you this um, so that if you want to know more, uh, turn to page 195 in your small catechism, of course. And what you have in uh, one page 195 all the way to page 230. So some 35 pages you have explaining this article and everything that we have here confessed. What I want you to just take a look at um, is question 187. That's on page 196. And in fact, let's just, jump, let's just jump one question earlier while we're there. 186, that'll give us the context. How was I brought under the gracious lordship of Jesus? Question 186. The Holy Spirit brought me to Jesus by bringing the promise of the gospel to me and by giving me faith in Christ through that gospel. Okay, so here's, here are some of these verses we were talking about earlier. John 6.65, Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So that in and of itself was enough to undo Pelagianism, this idea that you've by your own free will come to the Father. No, it has to be granted to you by the Father. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. What? Well, not the, sal- not the grace, not the salvation, and not the faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's why I said the acid test case is If you're planning on standing before Jesus and saying, I made a decision to follow you and that's why I should get into heaven and those people who made a decision not to follow you should rightly go to hell, you're boasting. And that's contrary to the scriptures. So again, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace is, the salvation is, the faith is. It's not a result of your works so that no one may boast. All right, 1 Corinthians 12.3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So you have no free will to say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit comes to you, enlightens you, and convinces you that Jesus is Lord, and then as the fruit of that conversion, your mouth says Jesus is Lord. So that confession of faith is in fact the fruit of what the Holy Spirit has wrought within you. All right, question 187. We'll we'll catch a couple more scriptures here. But I just want you to see the point how thoroughgoing this is in the New Testament. All right, question 187. Why can I not come to faith in Jesus by my own reason or strength? The answer A is, apart from the Holy Spirit, I'm spiritually blind and dead and thus cannot trust in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 12.3 We just quoted up above. 
This is that it takes the Holy Spirit to be able to confess that Jesus is Lord. So, B, apart from the Holy Spirit, I actively resist the gospel's call to faith in Christ. And we have um, Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Romans 8.7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So how can the How can the unconverted, fleshly mind that is set on the flesh turn to God or submit to God? It it cannot. Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, so here's the note and the conclusion for today. This is why Lutherans do not speak in terms like, quote-unquote, making a decision to accept Jesus. Instead, emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work of calling us and bringing us to faith through the gospel. When Jesus says, follow me, his word, by the Holy Spirit, has the power to turn us from our sin and to move us to trust him and follow after him. All right, so faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, I commend the rest of the, these pages to you. If you've, uh, if you've got questions about anything we talked about today, um, if you've got questions about the work of the Holy Spirit, conversion, good works, the church, the resurrection of the body, all of the above is tucked into the next uh, 30, 35 pages. The Lord be with you.